0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org.
1: Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. This morning we're going to finish up our study of 2 John. I really hate ending books. I don't like ending them. I don't like starting them. I like being in the middle somewhere. <laughs> uh, but let me remind you that this brief little letter was written for a twofold purpose. Number one, he wanted to remind the readers that they needed to love one another, something they had heard from the very beginning. He also wanted to warn them about certain false teachers that were traveling around teaching heresy. Now, in the first six verses, John talks about love. And what we have seen, and this is a, an important principle that I need you to get, you can only truly love God or your fellow man as you do it in obedience to the Word of God. In other words, we know that the Bible tells us to love one another. How do we do that? Well, the New Testament lays it out. And Yeshua took the 613 commandments from the Tanakh and he boiled them down to two love God, love your brother. How do we do that? Well, again, the New Testament tells us. You say, well, I don't know if I love that person or not. Well, can you forgive them? Because the Bible commands us to forgive each other. And if you love them, you can forgive them. That's an act of love. If you love them, you will be kind to them. Be kind one to another, the Scripture says. So that's how we know what love is. That's how we know if we love God. God says that we're to be imitators of Him. So guess what? If you love Him, that's a command. Imitate Him. That's how we know we're loving one another. So then we have to know the Word of God if we can love one another. If you don't know the Word of God, you don't know how you're supposed to love your brother or how you're supposed to love God. Now, as we come to verse 7, John's attention is drawn to the dangers presented to the church through the teaching of false doctrine to those he calls deceivers and antichrist. Pretty strong language. 2 John 1, 7-9 says, "...for many deceivers..." "...have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you do not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son." Now the common error of the deceivers and the antichrist was Christological. They denied the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. All right, this is a current heresy that's going on today, too, people. All right, this is not just something two thousand years old. They were denying the incarnation. They were denying the hypostatic union. They were denying the theanthropic person. So we spent some time last week talking about the hypostatic union. I guess the last couple weeks we've Kind of talked about it. Hopefully, you got an understanding of that. John tells his readers to watch themselves so that they may win a full reward. Basically, he's telling them to get involved in false doctrine could cost you your reward. He's not talking about salvation here, he's talking about future rewards. Now, the words goes on ahead here in verse 9 are from the Greek proago which means to go further than what is right, to go beyond what is taught. John says everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, a lot of commentators will tell you here that, well, he says he doesn't have God. That means you're not a Christian. You don't know God. That's not how John uses this term. And that's very important that you're familiar with Johannian literature so you know what he is saying here. To John, for John... To know God here, does not have God here, is synonymous with knowing God. It's synonymous with having fellowship with God. And it's synonymous with abiding in Him. This is very familiar language in John. Abiding is one of his major concepts. And that's what he's saying here. If you go on ahead, you're not in fellowship with God. Remember, John's writing to believers What John is conveying here is that whoever goes on ahead is not abiding in Christ. He is therefore not walking in the light. He does not have that fellowship relationship with the Father. Because when you embrace heresy, you necessarily abandon the close fellowship with the Father and Son. Orthodoxy is not just a matter of holding a biblical truth. It's also about walking in obedience. You know, we need to constantly be on guard against false teaching. Be cautious about what you hear. Be a Berean. And everything that you hear taught, you have to take to the Word of God to see, does it line up with the Word of God? False teachers don't come up and come up with some crazy stuff out of the blue that, you know, nowhere in the Word of God it says anything about this. They they base what they teach on scriptures, and they'll have certain scriptures that they use to try to back it up. You've got to go to the Word of God. You've got to examine the context. Because to fall into false teaching, John says, is to lose your reward. Now, this morning, we pick up our study in verse 10. And in these final verses, John is continuing his warning to the church. And let me just give you a warning right now. This might be too severe for some people. Okay? Depending on your personality, what I had to say this morning might be too strong. But I just want you to understand, I didn't make this stuff up. John is saying this. So if you have an issue, take it up with John, okay? Take it up with God, all right? The church that John is writing to was loving. The church was hospitable. So John writes to establish the limits of loving. Huh? Huh? There's limits to your love. That's what John is saying here. They are to love within the confines of truth. John, who's the disciple of love, has just emphasized the need for them to love one another in verse 5. But now he says that, that should not they shouldn't receive a false teacher into their homes or even give him a greeting. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your homes or give him a greeting. Now, if here, this is a first-class conditional sentence which assumes reality for the sake of argument. In other words, he's assuming this is already have. Since people are coming to you and bringing not this teaching, so he's assuming that this is going on. Since, we could translate that as sense there. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching. What teaching? Well, it's the teaching that he introduced in verse 9. The teaching of Christ. The teaching that Christ gave. The teaching that was about Christ. The stuff concerning His person and His work. Now, we don't need to argue over whether the Greek subjective or objective genitive is used here, because they're both true. It's the teaching about Christ, and it's the teaching Christ gave. We can take them both. There's no problem there. The truth about Christ is taught by Christ. So it's the teaching that they have heard from Christ, or about Christ, from the very beginning... That's the teaching. So if somebody comes along and teaches something different than what Christ has taught, he says, don't receive them into your house. This is a present active imperative with the negative particle, which often implies the stopping of an act already in progress. So we could translate this. Stop receiving them into your house. This was probably going on in the church. Remember, these people are hospitable. That's their culture. Strangers are coming in and they want to be hospitable. Now, what he says here, do not receive him into your house, can be taken two different ways. It could be a prohibition against showing hospitality to the traveling representatives of these false teachers. The provision of hospitality for itinerant Christians was very important in the early days of the church. We talked about this earlier in the very beginning of the study. In the culture of John's day, you know, the inns were not a good place to stay. They were basically brothels, so people would take each other in and they'd minister to one another. In John's day, philosophers and teachers relied on the people to whom they spoke for financial assistance and for lodging. They took care of them. Look at Acts 21.7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brethren And stayed with them one day. So people are taking Paul in and they're ministering to him. They're taking care of him. Now, Dr. Colin Krauss, talking about hospitality, writes this. He says, according to the norms of hospitality, the host was not only giving the guests food and lodging, but also providing patronage, gathering the rest of the community, and that guest was a worthy person. So the idea here is, if you're bringing someone into your home and you're providing hospitality, you are literally changing that stranger's status from being under suspicion as an outsider to being a trusted guest. Oh, you've taken them in, you're giving them... No, they must be trusted. They're a person we can trust then. Bruce J. Molina, he provides a very helpful description of the nature of hospitality in the Mediterranean world. He says, hospitality might be defined as the process by means which an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. Hospitality, then, is not something a person provides for a family or friends, but for strangers. That's literally what the word hospitality means, loving strangers. Okay? They need such hospitality, for otherwise they would be treated as non-human because they are potentially a threat to the community. Strangers had no standing in law or custom, and therefore they needed a patron in the community they were visiting. There was no universal brotherhood in the ancient Mediterranean world. So John is instructing his readers to refuse to help the false teachers by showing them hospitality. Now, how does that square with what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2? He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, because he begins with talking about loving brothers and sisters in verse one, and he's talking about loving them in verse three, when he talks about strangers here in verse two, he's probably talking about strangers in the family of God people who are unfamiliar to those in the particular fellowship of believers, you know, welcome them, love them, even though they're strangers. The words show hospitality are one word in the Greek. It's philoxenia, and it means stranger. All right, well, love, first of all, love, philos means love, and xenos means stranger. So it's a love of strangers. That's what that word means. So that's what hospitality means, loving strangers. Now the New Testament gives us a number of exhortations to hospitality. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4 9 show hospitality to one another. I like it that he says without grumbling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got them in my house. Yeah, they're eating our food. Yeah, I'm taking care, you know. Do do it, just, just do it. Love them. Don't do it grumbling, all right? So how do we balance this with what John is saying? Well, we have to understand John is warning against false teachers if they're teaching false doctrine, you're not to show them hospitality. Because again, this hospitality is going to say to the community, they're okay. Brought them in. They're good people. You can listen to them. He says, don't receive them into your house. So as I said, this could be translated in two ways. It could be a prohibition against showing hospitality. Others see it to be taken as a means of receiving uh, itinerant preachers into the assembly or into the house church. So in other words, don't let an itinerant preacher come in and speak at your house church if they're going to be spewing out false doctrine. So in this case, John was saying the opponents don't give them an opportunity to teach in your church, which, all right. I take the first view here. I think he's dealing with the congregation about hospitality because prohibition A prohibition against hospitality to false teachers doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the church was led by elders, and that was the elder's job to make sure that false teaching wasn't brought into that church, especially to let someone have a pulpit, to let somebody have a standing to teach. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, 2, Therefore an overseer, now overseer, elder, pastor, they're synonymous terms. Must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Paul says that's one of the responsibilities of the elders. They have to be able to teach. This is the Greek didaktikos, which means skilled in teaching. In Acts, Paul tells the Ephesian elders to protect the flock. That was the job of the elders. He tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Don't just watch out for yourself. You're, as an elder, you're watching out for the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he tells them to care for the church of God. That's the elder's job, protected from false teaching. So I don't see John as you know directing this to the church as a who are they going to allow to teach. That That's really the elder's job to make sure, again, there's sound teaching coming out of the pulpit. I think he's directing this to the people, bringing people into their homes individually, showing them hospitality. He urges them not to provide hospitality to anyone who comes with a different gospel. Now, Paul's view of those who teach another gospel is also really strong, like John's. And I think we somehow missed this today in our day of tolerance. Look what Paul writes in Galatians. He says, "...even if we or an angel from heaven..." Wow, that's pretty strong. So here comes an angel preaching. You want to, angel's got to be right, right? He said, if he should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He's to be damned, is what he's saying here. And then he just says it again. If, as we have said before, so I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. These false teachers are a curse. Don't show them hospitality. Don't give them any aid in what they're doing. John says don't show them hospitality or give them a greeting. This is another present active imperative with a negative particle. Stop greeting them. Greeting is the Greek word karo. And it means to give a greeting. Literally, this means to rejoice. And that basically was the standard Christian greeting. That's you see somebody and you go, rejoice. What? I'm rejoicing in your presence. I'm rejoicing that you're here. I'm rejoicing that we're fellowshipping. Rejoice. That was how Christians greeted one another. In other words, your presence is a source of joy. I'm rejoicing. Welcome to the fellowship. It's an affirmation of solidarity. So if John's readers greeted these people or took them into the house, they were associating themselves with the work that they did. And notice what he says in the next verse. The one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That's pretty strong, isn't it? If John's readers greeted these people, if they took them into the house, they are literally associating themselves with with the work that these teachers are doing, the word "participates" here is from the Greek "koinoneo." What's that word? Fellowship. If you greet them, you're fellowshipping in their evil deeds. Now, Paul uses the same word in Romans twelve thirteen. Contribute to the needs of the saints. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to fellowship with the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The word contribute here, koinoneo again. Communion, sharing, partnership. That means I'm partnering with you. I'm sharing my resources with you because we were in fellowship. In Acts chapter 2 and 4, it describes the early church. They're they're selling the things they had when someone had a need. That's kind of cool, huh? You got a need? Let me, I got too much. Let me sell some of this stuff and let me help you out. All right. Give to those who are in need. And Acts two forty four and 45 says, all who believe were together and had all things in common. Coin it out, fellowship. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, the Greek word translated common is from the same root as the word fellowship in verse 42. That tells me that it's something about Christian fellowship. It's more than just meeting together, having coffee or eating. It's when sharing the things together. It's sharing what you have. It's communing with that person. Now, John says, don't give them any greeting because you'll be fellowshipping with their evil deeds. That's pretty strong. Literally, you will be taking with them. That's amazing, you know. We're not even to give a verbal encouragement to false teachers. Now, there is a superficial sentimentalism today which almost recoils from John's words as unloving. John, that's so rude. We say, John, that's harsh. Yep, it's harsh. We say, that's unloving. Absolutely. But listen, nothing is as dangerous as deception because nothing is as precious as the truth. And that's what the issue here is. The truth. Does truth matter? If it matters then you know we don't worry about being kind and gentle and loving and fluffy to people who are presenting false doctrine. We're strong against them. We take a stand against that. We don't tolerate it. He's speaking here of the dangerous wolves from Acts 20. He's speaking of the thieves in the language of Yeshua in John 10 who said these thieves come to kill and to destroy the flock. People, you cannot overstate this. It would be impossible to overstate this. Truth is important. And you can't let lies, you can't let this deceptive stuff come in. It destroys people. We need to understand that there's an inseparable connection between truth and truth. And love. Some people like to go one side or the other, you know. But you can't love somebody when they're presenting false doctrine. If a false teacher is actively involved in deceiving the people about the truth, then we're not acting in love to do anything to encourage them or to help them in their evil deeds. I think Plummer's comment here is appropriate. He says this, "...charity has its limits." it must not be shown to one man in such a way as to do grievous harm to others. You understand he's talking about false teaching here, okay? So if you've you got a false teacher and you're, you're going along with him, you're fellowshipping with him, you're offering him greetings and encouragement and showing hospitality, you're hurting people because they're presenting their false doctrine. He says, still less must it be shown in such a way as to do more harm than good to the recipient of it. In other words, you're not helping him either by going along with this false doctrine. John is saying that the only grounds for Christian fellowship is truth. That's what we fellowship around. That's what we rally around. He's also telling us love has its limits. Notice what Paul said in Philippians 1.9. He says, my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Then he says this with knowledge and all discernment. The word discernment here, Istasis, it means, hang on to this, discernment, okay? It's only used here, but he says, first you have knowledge, and then eistasis. See, people who don't know doctrine don't have discernment. They don't know if it's right or wrong. It has to do with practical application of knowledge of the Word of God. So your love is controlled by your theology, And your insight into the application of that theology. John Stott writes this. If John's instruction still seems harsh, it is perhaps because his concern for glory of the Son and the good of men's souls is greater than ours. So he's basically saying, hey, look, if what John says bother you, maybe you're concerned about the wrong things. It's not God's glory. And because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. True love is not embracing false teachers concerning the person and work of Christ. That's not Christian love. We stand against that stuff. You know, Have you ever read any of the Reformers' writings? you ever read any debates they have? You would think they're not very nice to each other. I mean, they blast each other. Today, we live in such a mamby-pamby, tolerant world that anything you say is like, oh, I'm offended. I need a safe place. It's just crazy, people. It's absolutely crazy. Now, let me make it real clear here. The issue here is doctrinal error. He's not saying if someone likes to sprinkle... Instead of dunking, you should separate. No, we're not talking about, you know, baptism. Okay, do they, maybe they don't believe baptism is for today. Maybe they sprinkle, maybe they dunk. He's not talking about stuff like that. He's talking about doctrinal issues that are wrong, that are error, that are heresies. and, And doctrine that's able to mislead the people of the body of Christ who don't know better. It was radical and clearly defined unbelief and involved an active aggression in promoting their practice. I'm not telling you, you know, you know, another believer and their doctrine is a little bit off. Well, work with them. Teach them. See if you. No, I'm talking about someone who's trying to actively teach false doctrine. They're promoting it, they're teaching it. That's what we're standing against. There's a lot of people out there who have different views on different things, and some of them are. But you, listen, if they're getting their. Understanding of the Bible from their preacher or from TV, you can understand it might be a little skewed, okay? We need to encourage people, first of all, to read their Bibles, get familiar with it, so they have some basis to which to evaluate things. There's a study called systematic theology where, you know, theologians have taken the doctrines of Scripture and systematized them. So, okay, here's what the Bible teaches on these things. And there's a lot of different doctrines. Under systematic theology, we might start out with theology proper, which is what? No, theology proper is the doctrine of God. It's the attributes, the understanding of who God is, all right? Theology proper, that's about God. How about anthropology? The study of man, all right? That's what the Bible teaches about man. How about Christology? That's kind of a hard one there, right? The doctrine of Christ and what the Bible teaches about Christ soteriology salvation Salvation, that's right the doctrine of salvation how about ecclesiology this one would be stumble i'd get people to stumble on this this is the doctrine of the church all right what does the bible say about the church that's called ecclesiology how about eschatology you heard of that one before (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is the study of end times all right so yeah maybe you've never heard of that one how about Bibliology? You probably get this one, right? The study of the Bible, the doctrines of the Bible. How about Pneumatology? The study of the Spirit. Pneuma, all right? The study of the Spirit. So you have all these different theology. Now let me ask you this. Do you think all these areas of theology carry equal weight, equal importance? What would you, if you had to pick one, say, what one would you pick of, let's put one at the top here, what's What's primary? I'm going to say theology proper, right? Or, or, yeah, Christology. That's really important. Soteriology. Don't you want to have a correct doctrine of salvation? Yeah. Okay, those are important. But here's, here's a problem that I think we have. And by we, I mean us who hold to the preterist view of eschatology. All right? This is a particular problem with us. Because within this, this eschatology of preterism, people have come in here with all kinds of different doctrines. And, and what people tend to do is they tend to elevate eschatology to prime importance. Like this is, this is our main doctrine and it kind of looks like this kind of out, you know, it doesn't fit. Okay. Ah, this is it. Eschatology. It's just, listen, preterism is one of many eschatologies. All right. And preterism is not a denomination, but it seems to become one. And it's a denomination, it seems like the only doctrine that matters is eschatology. When do you think the Lord returned? 8070. Yes, we're brothers, we're fellowship, and everything's wonderful. Preterism, the problem with it is we put it above every other doctrine, and I think that's wrong. Okay? I'm not going to separate with another believer because they disagree with my eschatology. All right? It's just, you know, I don't think it's part of the gospel, people. And by that, you know, we've talked about this in the past. And by that, I mean, I think you can get saved and still have a messed up eschatology, okay? (laughs) Some people don't think that, but yes, you can, all right? It's not, you know, believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and make sure your eschatology is straight and you will be saved. No, it's not an area of salvation. If you study... Soteriology, you'll find that out. But I think that preterism has become an umbrella under which many false doctrines are gathering. And because they say I'm a preterist, we accept it. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to know anymore. I basically, we're all we're comrade, we have camaraderie together. And when people join the preterist movement, they bring their doctrinal errors with them. And because they say they're preterist, they discredit the eschatology. Because people from the outside look in and go, you're accepted. Those people are? No, that doctrine's messed up. So I think we have to be careful about embracing someone just because they say their eschatology is preterist. We can't line up and associate with people based strictly on their eschatology. There's just too many other important doctrines. All right, So we need to know a little more. Well, so what I want to do is in our remaining time this morning I want to look at some of the false doctrines that I see gathering under the this huge tree of preterism. And as we look at these false doctrines I want you to keep John's words in mind. Do not receive him into your house or give him a greeting. Again, this is Bible. This is John writing under inspiration. This is how he says to deal with false doctrine. And I know this is hard for some people because they're like, oh, I just, we just love them. Well, you're loving false doctrine. And that's not a good thing. Let's start with universalism. This is big within the preterist movement, all right? Universalism is the teaching that God through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between himself and all people throughout history. You understand what that's saying? Everybody is going to be saved. Everybody. Okay? That's universalism. And basically, this is going to happen regardless of whether they trust in or reject Christ as their Savior or not. doesn't matter. Uh, Former Mars Hill pastor, Rob Bell. Any of you heard of Rob Bell? Yeah. He ignited a theological controversy over universalism. He wrote a book called Love Wins. Wow, who wouldn't like that, right? Love Wins. Well, the gist of Bell's book is this. Every Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. In the end, love wins. Cool, right? Everybody gets saved. Even if you don't die saved, you get saved later. So everybody's it's gonna work out. Now listen, the basic presupposition of universalism is that God's nature is love and he loves everybody. I see universalism as the logical outcome of Arminianism. Because Arminianism says God loves everybody. Well, if he loves everybody, he's obviously going to save everybody. That would only make sense, right? And the universalists will go through Scripture and they'll pull out all the verses that say all or world and they'll attempt to prove their point that all will be saved. One universalist writes this, belief is not a requirement to be returned back to God in spirit when you die. So you don't need to believe. He says belief is the thing that gives us joy right now. Knowing that it has been accomplished that the works of the devil have been undone and Jesus is the Savior of the world. So having faith doesn't save you. Faith just gives you joy because now you know you're saved. Listen, the Bible doesn't say that those who believe on the Lord will have joy. It says they'll have eternal life. So not to believe is to not have eternal life. John three thirty six, He who is believing... And the Son hath life, age, during. Who has it? The one believing. And he who is not believing the Son shall not see life. That right there just contradicts universalism. If you're not believing, you're not going to see life. But the wrath of God doth remain on him. Listen, people, the Scripture from beginning to end proclaims the necessity of faith. Apart from faith in Christ, men will perish. Eternal life is only for believers. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation, katakrima, to those in Christ Yeshua. No condemnation here refers to spiritual death. They've overcome spiritual death by no condemnation. Because all are condemned in Adam, but those in Christ, those who believe in Christ, have no condemnation. Now listen, if Paul was a universalist, he would have said here, There is therefore now no condemnation to anybody. But he No, it's to those who are in Christ. Those who believe in Christ are not condemned. It's only those who believe who don't perish. All who do not believe will perish. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The unbeliever is condemned. He is under the wrath of God. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. This is Yeshua speaking. He says, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. There's only one thing that prevents you from dying in your sins and being damned forever, and that's belief that Yeshua is Yahweh. Belief of the truth, nothing more, nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. I see universalism as an attack on the gospel. Over and over the Bible calls upon men to believe on the Lord for salvation. But universalism says you don't need to believe. You don't need to do anything. You're, everybody's going to get saved. So don't worry about a thing. Just go on with your life. Bereans, just because someone holds to a correct doctrine of eschatology, just because they believe that the Lord returned in AD 70 does not make them our brother. It does not make them a Christian at all. Much more important than the doctrine of eschatology is the doctrine of soteriology. How is a person saved? And the Bible teaches we are saved by faith. So, yeah, it's a great doctrine. Love wins. Love everybody. Forget about truth. Forget about the Bible. Throw all that and just, you know. All right, another area of... And this might not be as familiar as universalism is uh, to you, but it's pretty prominent in the movement of preterism. That's Israel only. All right, This is another doctrine, doctrinal error that gathers under this umbrella of preterism. And those who hold this false teaching say the term Gentiles refers only to the ten northern tribes of Israel. They say this, the Bible is written solely and entirely to national Israel. And therefore, there is nothing in the Bible for us. It's all about Israel. Israel only, that's the Now listen, here's the interesting thing. Israel only is made up of white people who, white Europeans, they say, this is where Israel only comes, they're they're descendants of white Europeans, they're Israel only. There's another group who says black Africans are Israel only, and it's only them. I'm pretty sure one of them's wrong. (laughs) Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure both of them are wrong. Okay, but it's just funny. I mean, you, you've got the black people out there saying we're Israel only. And I think, to tell you the truth, they're a little closer to the original birthplace, okay, and the original color than the white Europeans, all right? But they're just saying it's just us. We're the only ones. you got to be of Israel, all right? They believe and they teach that everything ended in AD 70. And I mean everything, which includes salvation ended, sin ended, spiritual death, The church ended. The law of Christ ended. And if you believe this is true, why do you even bother reading the Bible? I mean, once you learn that none of it applies to you, including salvation, why would not you just throw it out and go on with your miserable life? And I'm not trying to be rude, but by miserable life, I mean if you don't believe the teaching of the Bible, your life is going to be miserable. All right? I believe that Yahweh has always had a plan for Gentiles. This is just basic, people, especially if you believe in the divine counsel viewpoint. All right. You understand that God was dealing with the world as a whole. And at one point in time, he got tired of it. And he said, look, you people don't listen to anything I tell you. You're a bunch of disobedient little wretches. I'm done with you. And he just cut off the world, cut them all off, said, listen, these gods here will be your gods. I'm going to start over. And he called Abraham and he got Israel. But as, he, as soon as he called Israel, he told them, you're going to be a blessing to the Gentiles, to the people who aren't you. So it's, just, it's kind of a foolish, crazy thing. But God loves the Gentiles, always has, has promised from the very beginning that he would go back and call the Gentiles. And the Bible is relevant to us today. Now, the Israel-only people are right when they say that the term nations or Gentiles is used of the northern kingdom of Israel. Let me make this clear. The northern kingdom of Israel is included in the term nations or Gentiles, but it's not exclusive of that. And that's what they want to try to make it. It's exclusive. The Greek term ethnos can be used of the ten northern tribes. At times, it is used of them. They're called goi or ethnos. But these terms are not exclusive to the northern kingdom of Israel. For example... In Mark ten thirty three, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the ethnos. Who are the ethnos here? Is, he, is, he, is Christ being turned over to the Jews? No, these are Gentiles that are killing him, all right? These are Romans. These are non-Israelites. In Acts 4:27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So here, Gentiles are a distinct group from Israel. Ethnos is non-Israelites. Acts 9:15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And the children of Israel. Again, he, Paul is taking his message to Gentiles, ethnos, and to the children of Israel. Let me just throw this in here. Each one of these topics that I'm hitting on, I've got full messages on these topics. So if you need more, go on our website, go to the search engine, type in Israel only in quotations, and it'll pull up all the messages I talked about Israel on. Universalism, same way. I've done many messages on universalism just on that subject. So I'm just hitting highlights here you want to dig deeper, and I encourage you to do that, go to the website. So the body of Christ is made up of regathered 12 tribes of Israel, non-Israelites who have been called by Yahweh and trusted Him. The term Gentiles is far more expansive than the I.O. people want to claim. And those who hold to this Israel-only false doctrine, as I said, they're cessationists. They believe everything ended in AD 70. They take the principle of audience relevance to a place that none of the Bible, none of it applies to us today. And they'll claim, oh, audience relevance, it's not for you, it's not for you, it's not for you. They're saying that the Bible is written solely and entirely to the national Israel. Hmm, I seem to have some books in the New Testament that were written to Gentiles, specifically. They're accusing us of using audience relevance only for the time statements. And what they mean is that to them, the Bible isn't relevant to today's audience at all. And these people are saying that since none of the Bible is written to us, none of it applies to us. And they're wrong. They say it's all about Israel. It's about their sin, their salvation, their Messiah. They go so far as to say sin is done away in AD 70. We don't sin today. We don't need salvation today. Well, Paul taught that the Gentiles in the church shared in the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant. And like I said, when God called Abraham, He made it clear from the beginning. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Let me make it real clear what he's saying here. The promises that God made in the Abrahamic covenant were for Abraham and Christ. That's it. Abraham and Christ. The seed of Abraham. Paul goes on to say, if you are Christ, that's by faith, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The you here is not limited to those in Galatia in the first century. That's not the only people who can get in the Abrahamic promise. If by faith you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and you're heir of the promise. It doesn't matter whose blood you have in your veins, it's whose faith you have in your heart. Again, God always intended to call the Gentiles back when He did away with them. And that's, I think, pretty clear. All right, another doctrinal error that gathers under the umbrella, and this is a big one, it's baptismal regeneration. All right, they say that the act of water baptism... Conducted by a pastor or priest contains regenerative or life-giving power. One of the largest religious groups in the world today teaches that unless you're water-baptized, you cannot be saved. What group is that? Ah, you missed what I said. The largest, yes. Roman Catholic. That's what the Roman Catholics teach. You ever go to a Roman Catholic funeral, we know they're in heaven because... They've been baptized. That's it. That gets you in, people. You're safe if, you know, that's, that's what they believe. Now, the other prominent group that teaches a similar heresy is the Church of Christ that you named, all right? They also make it clear that unless you're water baptized, you cannot possibly be saved. Sorry, you just, you just can't do it. This goes back to soteriology. This is a doctrinal error. And under the umbrella of preterism, there are many, many from the Church of Christ. By coming to believe in eschatology of preterism, now their eschatology is correct, but their soteriology is in error. It's messed up. They teach that the ritual of water baptism saves you. Just get wet and you're going to heaven. Now, Jack Cottrell, in his book, Baptism, a Biblical Study, presents the denominational view of the churches of Christ and Christian churches, and he says this, Every Christian has come within the scope of this sin-destroying force of the death of Christ. We have tapped into its lethal power. When did we do this? In our baptism. There is absolutely no indication that this union with Christ in His death happened as soon as we believed or repented. We did not believe into His death. We did not repent into His death. Paul explicitly says we have been baptized into His death. So how about that, people? So they teach the act of water baptism by that a person is born again rather than the sovereign act of God through the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question here. You have to think Go back a ways, okay, in your time machine, to the Gospel of John. Why did John write the Gospel? What was his purpose? All right. He wanted people to believe so you could have life. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe. These, the things I've written, especially he's referring to the signs that he wrote about that took place, that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. All right. Let me say, this is the only book in the Bible that states it specifically is written to bring people to faith in Christ. The only one. That's why, you know, you always hear people telling new converts, read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John. That's the purpose of it. That's why John wrote it. I need to get a coffee warmer up here. That's nasty cold. (laughs) So he's writing... That they will believe, all right? And by believing, they'll have life. Now listen, if you read this gospel, you're going to find out John has a lot to say about belief. You're also going to find he has nothing to say about water baptism. Hmm. Now think with me about this. John wrote his gospel specifically to bring people to life, eternal life. Yet in the gospel of John, baptism was never mentioned. Now, if baptism was necessary for salvation, John messed up. He wrote a book to tell people how to get saved, and he doesn't even tell them how to get saved because he missed a, a, a main ingredient. And let me add something here also to this, okay, to your soteriology doctrine. You know what else John never mentions? Repentance. So John wrote a book to tell people how to get saved. He doesn't mention baptism. He doesn't mention repentance. That would make me scratch my head and think maybe those two things aren't necessary for salvation. Now, we could argue about repentance. The Greek word metanoia means change your mind. And obviously, if you become a Christian, you just change your mind. Right? You didn't believe in Christ. Now you believe in Christ. You change your mind. All right? But most people take the meaning of, of metanoia to mean change your life. All right? And they say you've got to change your life to be a Christian. Well, again, John messed up because he left out a critical ingredient to salvation. But John didn't mess up. The book is inspired. And he wrote it, and he doesn't talk about baptism. He doesn't talk about repentance because they're not necessary for salvation. What is necessary is faith in Christ. All right? That's the gospel according to John. All right, let me give you another one. Unitarianism is another doctrinal error that gathers under preterism. According to their website, Unitarians believe that Jesus was a man unequivocally human, it has long been our view that to talk of him as God is unfaithful to his own understanding of himself. While honoring him, we do not worship him, something we believe he would not have wanted. When Thomas called Yeshua, my Lord and my God, he should have said, Thomas, what are you talking about? I'm just a man. But he didn't do that. I wonder why he didn't do that. You know, I read statements like this and I thought, have you ever even read the Bible? I mean, really? Have you ever read it? Yeshua himself said that when you honored him, you honored the father. John five twenty three, that all may honor the son just as in the same way they honor the father. Now, wait a minute. The Bible says, I'll have no other gods before me, and yet we're putting Yeshua on this plane because He gets the same honor? Yeah, because He's God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. John 5 is strong on this whole topic, okay? If you don't honor the Son, you don't have the Father. What other religious group would this include? That say they're tight with God. Jews. Jews. Oh, we love God. We worship God. We serve God. Let me tell you something, Jews. From the time of Christ, from the time he started his ministry, if you're a Jew and you don't accept him, you're done. You're out. You don't. If you don't honor the Son, you don't have the Father. Now, this will get people's hair standing on end, okay? Trust me. Because those Jews are God's special people over there. Well, then John messed up again. When you read a Unitarian that says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Again, anyone who says that does not know the Bible. They're either just reading the Bible in English and they don't know anything about Greek or Hebrew and they they just, even then, you're still missing an awful lot. Over and over, Yeshua claimed to be Yahweh. He does it all through this text in John 5. He insists that to to worship Him is the same as you worship the Father. They're the same. He's to be honored, praised, adored, respected, trusted, just as God the Father is. So when the Unitarian says, while honoring Him, we do not worship Him. He's not only honoring the Son, He's dishonoring the Father. And that's a serious thing. So when a man says God is God, but Yeshua is only the Son of God, denying Him the honor of the Father, He's not only dishonoring Christ, He's dishonoring the Father. Yeshua said, unless you believe that I am. John 8, 24. Now this is important here, people. The word He is not in the text. All right, That was added by the translators to try to make it read smoother. But here's what Yeshua is saying. Yeshua is saying to these Jews, unless you believe that I am. What does he mean by I am? What's, he, what's that claim to be there? Who is the I am? That is God. In Exodus, when Moses said, Who, who should I say send me? He said, Ehiah, Asher, Ehiyah, I am who I am. This is what Yeshua is saying. Unless you believe that I am God, you're dying your sins. John uses the I am all through this text. I mean, it's just, this is powerful stuff, people, but people just miss this stuff. I don't know how. No one can know God who does not know His Son. And conversely, no one can honor and praise the Father who does not honor and praise the Son. Anyone who says they worship God, but they deny the deity of Christ, they don't have the Father or the Son. And this would include Muslims, Jews, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Unitarians. All those groups. They deny the deity of Christ. And that's pretty strong stuff, people. Because unless He's God, you're dead in your sins. Now, just because these people who are in this group hold to a preterist view of eschatology doesn't mean they're our brothers. We need to heed John's words about these false teachers. He says, if anyone comes to you and he does not bring this teaching, the teaching the Bible lays out about Christ. Don't receive him into your house. Don't give him a greeting because you do this. You take part in their wicked works. That's strong, people. Now, John closes with these words. He says, though I have much to write to you. In other words, boy, I'd like, i like, I got a lot of stuff I want to tell you. All right, this is just a brief little letter. I've got a lot more to say. I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. That's what he wants. Want, I want to be there with you. The Greek here is stoma pro stoma, mouth to mouth. He wanted to be there to fellowship with them. So he didn't have to write down and not. And he said, I want to share our joy. He means your joy and mine. The completion of joy here is probably the joy they'll have as they experience fellowship together. You know, I'm not getting a lot of fellowship from writing you a letter. I want to be there and I want to commune with you guys. He says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Now this verse, like verse 1, uses metaphorical language to speak of a sister church and its members. Now those who understand the lady here in verse 1 to be a real individual have difficulty with this verse because it makes it sound like, how is that really a lady? Your elect sister. This is another reference to a particular local church, a sister church of the church to whom 2 John is written. This is probably the church where he was when he was writing them, and he says, hey, the children of your elect sister greet you. And we said he used this language to be cryptic. In case this letter was grabbed by somebody, they don't know he's talking about a church, and he just thinks he's talking about some lady and her kids or something. The word here, greet, is aspadzomai, which simply means to greet. It's a different word from that we saw back in verse 10, which was Cairo. All right, the greeting, don't give to false teachers. So he says, listen, and again, these are strong, strong words, and I pray that we'll take them to heart, people, because it's important. Don't receive them into your house. Don't give them a greeting. I know so many preterists who are accepting these false teachers who are teaching universalism, Israel only, Unitarianism, you know, baptismal, they're teaching all these things and the preterists are just running to them. Oh, they're great teachers. Because if you greet them, you take part in their wicked words. And remember a couple of verses up, he's warning you about the loss of rewards. And again, this is not me saying this, okay? I'm just trying to teach you what these verses say. Let me close again with the words of John Stott. If John's instruction still seems harsh, it's perhaps because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of men's souls is greater than ours. He goes on, And because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. Believers, we need to understand there's an inseparable connection between truth and love. If a false teacher is actively involved in deceiving people about truth, then we are not acting in love to do anything to encourage them, to accept them, to fellowship with them. We actually partake in their evil deeds. And as I said earlier, you cannot overstate this. It would be impossible to overstate this. Truth matters. And we love in the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, these words of John are hard, especially to our tolerant culture. Father, help us to understand the importance of sound doctrine, to understand the difference that it makes, to understand that we are called to walk in the truth and that we are not to do anything to encourage false teachers. Anyway, support them, encourage them, give them a platform to speak. Father, I pray you would give us the heart of Bereans and we would search the scripture to see if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Questions or comments? I
0: have a comment. I think it may be helpful um, to know that in that time, culture... Their greeting was not a "Hey, how you doing?" It was a long, drawn-out process. So it's not like you can't say "Hi," but you didn't. Go okay, the whole right.
1: Course. Sham brought up the fact it's not that you can't say "Hi" to these false teachers, you know. Uh, but if I could read you some of the writings of Polycarp, when Sorinthus came into a public bath that he was in. He got up and he screamed and ran out of the place. You know the son of Satan is here and he left. You know they didn't they didn't treat false doctrine nicely. They weren't kind to false doctrine then. But yeah, that's not it's not saying don't say hi to this person, but it's saying you, you give them a greeting. Again, the greeting is rejoice. I get to be with you. No, you, you're not. You don't want to rejoice. What they're doing is wrong. Now they'll obviously try to defend what they're doing. David,
0: I guess it would mean for us today the whole idea of fellowshipping with them. You know, not that you couldn't be cordial with them or you got to be rude to them, but you're fellowshipping with them, and
1: again, I, and I would agree. I, I think that you know this is definitely deals with fellowship. You know, we're going out to have a meal, or we're going to have them in and have them speak, or we're going to just hang out with them. No, okay, you're partaking in their evil deeds. You got to be careful here. We don't want to do anything to spread or encourage false doctrine. Zoe, you got a question? Um, you said that, you,
0: I think I'm, if I'm putting this correctly, you said that you don't think that baptism is
1: necessary. What about holy water? What about holy water? For what? Like I don't, know. I don't think water is holy. Okay. Yeah. There's no, again. There's nothing in the Bible about holy water. This is a Catholic tradition. They somehow take water out of the faucet, they bless it, and it becomes holy. And then you can you can sprinkle it on demon, and they'll scream and yell. I guess. I, you know, that's it's a non biblical thing. And you know, I didn't say I didn't believe baptism was necessary. Although I don't. But I didn't say that. But, uh, but I think, you know, I'm just talking, there's different modes of baptism. Some don't believe it's for today. Some believe it should be immersion. Some believe it should be sprinkling. That's not that's a non issue. That's not... We're going to not fight over something like that. At least I'm not. Okay? I mean, there's some issues. There's some fundamentals of the faith that we have to hang to. And there's others that, you know, they're up for discussion.
0: Jeff? I'm curious, so the, 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 the ancient Jewish people and the hospitality, and once you were invited in, you were considered okay, but how does that guy invite you in, though, whether you're okay or not? This is oh, they, oh, he got beat up. I guess we don't like this guy. I mean, how, who takes the first step in bringing strangers in to see if they're okay? I, I know. I
1: don't, I don't understand that. I mean, there's so much, there's so many warnings, you know, against this, but yet, on the other side, it was just a big thing to take somebody in. You know, that was, and again, we, we did this in the first message, I believe it was, when we went into Second John, about hospitality, and I gave you some illustrations of, you know, the guys are saying, "Hey, take my daughters," you know, just don't take my guests, you know. I'm like, I'd be doggone. Here's the guests, you know. I don't like this guy anyway, you know. But no, so you see the extremes of it, and I don't know how they made a distinction. I don't know if they vetted people before bringing them in, but you know, these teachings that I've read about, they're they're saying, you know, this is patronage. Once you say, you know, we we taken this guy and his, he's okay, he's a good guy. I don't know the laws or how they work that out, Stanley? Uh, uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, partway through my tour, you know, in Australia, we basically you meet the chaplain when you first get there. He was Protestant. He seemed okay. And then after that, I think it was the Church of Christ, and they were a musical group, but they were going to be invited into the church
0: and we didn't think that was right we had a lady elder she went to the chaplain that's and found out he was the one who invited him so we we basically
1: left after that well let's see that's what happened well, when you're talking the military there's so many rules there you know it's hard to find a chaplain that loves the lord because they're under so many different rules and i understand that when i was in the military we actually found a good church for a little while anyway until they switch you know they have to rotate them in and out but mm-hmm. Again, that that those are issues. You have to take a stand. Okay, are we going along with this, and what are we saying? You know, are we saying we agree with their doctrine, and you know, whatever. Okay, so yes, do you think the distinction between those who teach
0: and those who believe their teaching?
1: Yes. And I made that. At least I tried to make that in the message that I'm not saying just because somebody believes a false doctrine, you avoid them. And you know, you might try to educate them. I'm talking about a false teacher. This person is known. They're teaching others. They're pushing, or they're pushing a doctrine. No, we stop there. No, no, that's garbage. We don't. We're not putting up with that stuff. Okay.
0: What
1: is deliberately implied? Yeah, because I mean, let me tell you something, people. Most Christians are a little whacked in some area, okay? Because they just haven't been educated. All right, really. They haven't, they haven't been educated. You know, we might have some been educated.
0: Well, that was one of the things I kind of struggled with when I first started studying preterism and you know, the church we were going to, of course, was dispensational. And it's like, you, know, you agree with the more important things, like soteriology and whatnot. But how long do you sit under that before that and still take in the constant Jesus is coming soon? And like you know, it gets frustrating after a while, you know, that even that even though it's not a essential doctrine per se, it's it alters a lot of the essential doctrine <clears throat> well, yeah. you know, and it problem. just it becomes frustrating after a while, you know, that even though they got their soteriology right and theology and everything, you know, having that
1: thing wrong. Yeah, I guess you, you know, that's the thing. You have to pick what's important to you. What's the most important? You know, can I live with this? Can I, you know, if they're teaching, you know, they're they're messed up in some area that you don't want to hear about week after week. You know, going to a futurist church and every week the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back. You're like, no, he's not. You know, you know, but what else? Well, you know, like I said, if they're straight on soteriology. That you know, that's kind of to me what's you know whether you think he came or is coming. Let's get our soteriology straight. Oh yeah. All right, I got a question here from Mark Um, in the deep South Texas. He says slight quibble. The Gospel of John does mention baptism. No, it does not. Yes, it does. No, it does not. Not in that
0: reference. I know what
1: you're saying. It mentions baptize. It does not mention baptism, and that's what I said. I know there's. I think three references to baptize, but they're not talking. They're talking about John the Baptist and what John did. Okay, so it's got nothing to do with John's message of salvation. So I'm telling you, I'm not quite as dumb as I look. So I knew when I said that, I wanted to make sure what I was saying. All right, so baptism itself, no, is not mentioned. All right, he goes, yeah, he mentions the word where John uses baptize, speaking of John the Baptist.
0: But it says, "I myself did not know him." But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So how does that?
1: That's John the Baptist. That's John the Baptist. Right, he's revealing the Lord to Israel. With but he's John Baptist is never in his teaching. We never see, you know, he doesn't go on and go into baptism from there on. Baptism was an Israelite thing, all right? They were realizing, they were coming and they were being cleansed, all right? But he doesn't use baptism in a sense of talking about doctrine or this is how you're saved or connecting it at all. It's in the very beginning, I think there's three references all connected to John, all right? John's just announcing, here's Christ, all right? Here's the one you need to believe on, basically, is what he's saying, so it's not part of John's message, that's what I'm saying. I know I, sh- you know, I knew when I said that. I said, someone's going to say, well, John does mention, no, not baptism. He mentions baptize. So, does that help, Cheryl, or no? No. Because
0: it says he used it to reveal to them Christ. Right. So, right.
1: Right. Okay. He's used, yeah. <laughs> But it's not but that, he's pointing out who Christ is that's all he's using it for okay not
0: he's not saying he's he not he's not
1: right he's not saying you have to do this to be saved he's not adding it to anything he teaches it's you know the lord never said you got to do this he
0: was just presenting us <laughs> the word fact, yeah. fact not something right, right. got to do okay now
1: i'm getting so messy. these people <laughs> 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 we
0: knew
1: no, that was going to be wrong All right. The question: What do you do if you have a sister and brother-in-law who are LDS, Latter-day Saints? Mm. Our prayer is to help them learn the truth. They just moved here and have had them come over for dinner. My husband and I know a lot about LDS because our prevalent, our time in AZ. Our hope is to reveal the lies, their doctrine. Yeah. I, I, again, I think that's awesome. I think you know people who are false teachers. All right. Try to help them. Here's the difference. These Mormons are going house to house. Jehovah's Witnesses going house to house. They're going to teach you. They have their literature. You, you don't know. You stop them. You don't let them in. You don't encourage them in any way. Alright? But you have, you know someone that's involved in this. If they'll sit down with you and talk the Bible, yes, absolutely. I'd sit down with Satan and talk Scripture if you would be open to it. Okay? Uh, again, we've got to make a distinction that false teachers that are trying to press their doctrine... And others who were just in false doctrine. And that's a big difference. Um, After AD 70, were all the fallen angels and watchers judged and condemned to the lake of fire? Yeah, I'm not sure how this came in the message, just kind of thrown in there. What are demons then? Um, Okay, I do... (laughs) Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Gary answered your question on, on what are demons. He said Democrats, all right? Um, go to the website,
0: type it in, and do some research.
1: Yeah, I would da- again, <laughs> um, I believe the fallen watchers were judged. I believe demons were judged. I believe they're still good watchers. All watchers weren't fallen. I believe they're still there today. But I believe that the believers, the Church of God, is replacing the divine council as the family of God. All right, so uh, like I said, I'm not sure how that came in there, but okay. is Dar is Darby the author of the false rapture doctrine? Why would not evangelicals research this? Um, they like that. They like what he's teaching. Again, if you like what somebody teaches, it sounds good. You know, just wait. and You're going to get sucked off the planet someday, and everything will be wonderful, and you know,
0: like the sensation.
1: Yeah, there's, you know, again, that's some screwed up doctrine, okay? Mm-hmm. But I can fellowship with someone who's a dispensationalist, as long as their soteriology is straight. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to sit around and wait for the Lord to return. I'm like, He's already here. We've been fellowshipping for a long time. You're, you're waiting for Him. You know, the promise of the new covenant is God will dwell with His people. Is He with us or not? Are we in the new covenant or not?